0: Well, this morning, once again, as we do every Sunday, we have the privilege and the joy of opening up God's Word and expecting to hear from God and to, to encounter Jesus as we do so. Today we'll be opening up to the book of Mark, chapter 3. We're, we're a couple months into the book of Mark. We'll be in Mark, chapter 3, verses 20 through 35 if you're a first-language Spanish speaker, si habla español, abran sus Biblias a el Evangelio según Marcos, capítulo 3, versículos 20 a 35. Now, this series in the book of Mark, it's about answering the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus and what has he done? And as we've said so many different times, it would seem like the most obvious question that a book about the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus is about answering the question, Who is He? But what's reinforced is that this is the most important question that you or anyone could ever ask. And in fact, it's the first question that you should ask in any and every scenario. And back in chapter 1, verse 15, we learned that Jesus had come to bring near the kingdom of God, and last week we learned that the most important thing about the kingdom is Jesus, not his benefits, but him. But this morning we find, well, we find Jesus issuing warnings about what happens if you don't get Jesus, if you find yourself outside the kingdom. So listen closely. Here we go. Let's read together in Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 20. Jesus has just, he just named the twelve apostles, and then verse 20, then he went home. And the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one, can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed, he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter. But... Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside they sent to him and called him and a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is God's word, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, would you be merciful As you deliver your word to us, would you work through this weak man's wisdom, through this weak man's words, and send your spirit, your holy and good spirit to do your good work among us. Would we receive your grace and your blessing through your son, Jesus Christ, this morning, and confess today, leaving here, how good he is. It's in his name we pray. Amen. In this passage, Jesus says some troubling things. We read this passage with with sort of an ominous tone. This is not a happy passage on the surface. Jesus says some downright scary things in this passage. He, He responds to a claim that Satan is behind his work, the prince of demons. He says that there is a sin, there, that there does exist a sin that is unforgivable. He surprisingly states that his closest relatives, including Mary, who bore him in her womb and, 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 and sang the Magnificat, are not his truest family, Mary and Jesus' brothers. Last week, we learned that it's, it's not about what we can get from Jesus. It's about Jesus himself. But make no mistake, everybody will receive something from Jesus. Everybody will receive something from Jesus. But, but by the end of this passage, what Jesus makes clear is that he's saying these things, these scary things, to those who are on the outside. The scariest things that Jesus ever says are to those who are on the outside. And what those who find themselves on the outside will receive from Jesus are not his blessings. And, and listen, I, I know that insider and outsider language sounds off-putting at first, doesn't it? It, it sounds like us and them language. It sounds exclusive. It sounds uncomfortably black and white. But, friends, this is how Jesus spoke. He came ushering in God's kingdom as the one representing God the Father, the, the, the holy creator who had created humanity in his own image. And that very humanity had rebelled against him. And Jesus is now coming as God's representative to that very humanity. This was no trifling. Work that Jesus had come to do. He was exclusive. His teaching was black and white. He made clear who is on the inside of his kingdom and who is on the outside of his kingdom. And it has nothing to do with skin color. It has nothing to do with, with ethnicity and nationality. It has nothing to do even with religiosity or your Sunday church attendance. It has nothing to do with anything other than how you receive Jesus, fundamentally. How you receive Jesus determines what you get from Jesus. How you receive Jesus determines what you get from Jesus. Whether you receive the blessings of those on the inside or the the, the painful things reserved for those on the outside depends entirely and solely on how you receive Jesus. Now, today, though Jesus says some scary things to those who are on the outside, what's implied in his words are a word actually of comfort to those who are on the inside. So we're actually going to look at this text from that perspective. We're going to look at three comforts for those who are on the inside of God's kingdom. We're going to dig beneath the surface and listen to the words of of what Jesus is saying to those who are on the inside. Even though we will hear those scary things to those on the outside. Now, I want to issue a caution at the forefront here. If one does find oneself on the inside, within God's kingdom, that does not give you the right to mock or judge those who are on the outside. It is not us versus them. It is us pleading to and pleading for them to come inside. It is us walking alongside them that they might come inside by encountering Jesus. Okay? Do not use this as a temptation to look at others self righteously as though you have earned something in yourself by being within God's kingdom. It is all of grace. And if we miss grace and see anything worthwhile in ourselves having earned us that inside seat, we've missed it. We've actually missed Jesus. So, hear that caution. Now, if you don't know if you are inside or outside, well, Jesus will make it clear to you at the end of these 16 verses. That's, that's in fact, what this whole passage is about. So, let's get going. Our three points. Those who receive Jesus correctly will be comforted that, first, Jesus has defeated Satan in you and for you. Jesus has defeated Satan. Secondly, forgiveness remains for you. So Jesus has defeated Satan. Secondly, forgiveness remains for you. And third, you belong to the best family. You belong to the best family. Now let's jump into this text, this first point, Jesus has defeated Satan. This this passage is the first of multiple, what are called by scholars, Marken Sandwiches, where, where Mark sandwiches or, or interrupts one scene with another scene before concluding the original scene. Okay? And in most cases, Mark brings resolution to the original scene and the interruption through that final scene. So he takes the first piece of bread and then the meat and then brings resolution to them both through the third or he takes the first Oreo cookie and then the cream and then brings resolution through that third Oreo cookie. And we can all agree that the best part of an Oreo is the cookie. The cookie makes the Oreo the Oreo. There I said it. I said it. Two Oreo cookies, cream filling. In this case, the cream filling is a controversy where scribes who come from Jerusalem are making an, ac- an accusation against Jesus, and it sits between the, the two cookies, which is a conflict that Jesus actually has with his own family. And they're both uncomfortable scenes. But, but they're, they're there to teach. And Lord willing, we will learn this morning. So the first Oreo cookie, we're going to go with the, the Oreo rather than the, than the bread and meat sandwich here, okay? The first Oreo cookie is verses, one, verses, verses 20 and 21. Okay. Jesus is at home, and the crowd continues to press in upon him, so much so that he doesn't even have time or space to get away and have a meal. They're so persistent. Now his family, and Mark identifies them down in verse 31 as, as Mary and his brothers, Jesus probably had four brothers, they, they hear of it, and they head out to to, to retrieve him from the crowd. Why? And, and, and this is surprising, isn't it? Because they've concluded that he is, verse 21, out of his mind. Now listen, more than likely, they, they've heard that Jesus has deeply upset the religious authorities of Israel. And, and, and not just some low-ranking authorities. His, his name is getting up to the top Of the pile and he's amassing this crowd in his opposition to to religious authority so so more than likely his family's going what is he doing he's bringing shame on our family this is this is ridiculous and he and he insists on continuing and he welcomes these these followers and so they think before he continues to do more damage we got to go retrieve him. He's out of his mind. But then, Mark interrupts. The cream filling slips in in verse 22. In in light of the accusation of of craziness that his family makes against him, some scribes from Jerusalem charge Jesus with a much more serious accusation. Now notice, these are scribes from Jerusalem. We've seen scribes before oppose Jesus, but these are from Jerusalem. From, from the religious center of Israel. And mo- more than likely, these are scribes from the high priestly families who have been delegated. They have been sent from Jerusalem to Galilee on a fact-finding mission. And they hear the same things that Jesus' family has been hearing. And they conclude, on their fact-finding mission, what they find In verse 22, they say he is possessed by Beelzebul. By the prince of demons, he casts out demons. Beelzebul translated roughly means prince of heaven, the ruler of this world, Satan. We conclude that this Jesus definitely has power. We've seen him cast out demons. We have seen him heal. But it's not the power of God's spirit. It's by the power of Satan himself that this Jesus is casting out demons. It was hard to believe that teachers of the law would levy this accusation against Jesus. And both Jesus' family and the scribes from Jerusalem, listen, the point is they both received him incorrectly. That's what the the focus is in these first few verses, is to demonstrate neither of them received him correctly. However, the scribe's accusation was far more severe. And the force of Jesus' rebuke matches the force of, of the accusation. But even before Jesus defends himself, even before Jesus responds, the demons themselves have already answered this accusation. Because back in chapter 1, verse 24, when Jesus cast a demon out of a man, what does that demon say? He says, I know you. You're the Holy One of God. Of God, not of Satan. Of God. And what what else does he say to him? He says, we want nothing to do with you. So the demons have testified already that we want nothing to do with this Jesus. He's not from us. But Jesus does defend himself. And through several parables, the first of many parables, he showed really how, how stupid the suggestion of a civil war with Satan himself is. Look at, verse, look at verse 24. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. When, when Solomon became king of Israel, if you know your Old Testament history, what did he do shortly after he became king of Israel? He split the kingdom. And what happened when Israel split into Judah and Israel? Hundreds of years of war and dissension and a crumbling kingdom, and captivity, and exile that persisted from that moment, pretty much, up until this point in time. And more than likely, that's what Jesus is referring to. But you think even a little bit further later into history, the fall of Rome, that the famous, the, the world history famous fall of Rome. Most scholars conclude that the primary reason that Rome fell was because of the instability of its emperor. In in the span of its final 75 years, you know how how many different men sat on the throne of Rome? 23. One scholar said that to take the throne of Rome in that period was pretty much a death sentence. If you took the throne, you were bound to be murdered by another waiting to take the throne for himself. And that kind of instability of warring factions against each other, that the house of the emperor fell. The underlying principle in Jesus' parables is that power and survival depend on unity. Power and survival depend on unity. And that if if Satan has risen up against himself, his reign is at an end anyway. He's essentially looking at them and saying, so if you guys are right, you should be celebrating (laughs) because Satan's going down either way. But Jesus knows, and they know, that Satan would not willingly self-destruct. He can only be destroyed by a greater power. And that's the point Jesus makes with his final parable. Look down at verse 27. He says, But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first... Binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. The strong man is Satan. The house is his power over the people he controls through his demons. And the strong man's possessions are the people his demons possess. And and so Jesus' point is that the, the strong man's possessions, precious people created in God's image, can only be taken from Satan by one who who opposes Satan not on his same side and is more powerful than Satan. And praise be to God, Jesus has bound the strong man. He has bound the strong man. He is powerful enough he alone is powerful enough so he's saying guys i've bound the strong man and the fact that i have cast demons out of men and women is proof that i have bound him i have entered into his house and i have taken his possessions and i've i've made them mine because i love them now listen 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 how you receive jesus determines what you get from jesus so here's the scary thing if you deny that Jesus' power is from God, then you deny, then you deny his power to defeat Satan. And Satan's, Satan still maintains his grip on your life. If you deny that Jesus' power is from God, then you deny his power to defeat Satan. And Satan still maintains his grip on your life influencing your thoughts and your decisions, tempting you, discouraging you, leading you away from God. But if you receive Jesus for who he is, if you receive him as God's own son sent to, to rescue you, to destroy the works of the devil, then listen to what one commentator says, and I think he says it so well. He says, it is most important, especially in a world where he seems so powerful that we realize that the enemy has already been defeated. Every time in Mark's gospel that Jesus drives out Satan from the life of a person and frees him or her from his power, we have another proof of that. Take comfort. Satan is very powerful. He he is not to be trifled with. There's a reason why the Jews' nickname for him is the Prince of Demons. Why Paul in 1 Corinthians 4 calls him, the, 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 that's not capital G, the lowercase g, the God of this world. But in Christ, Satan's power has been defeated for disciples of Christ. But know this. His power has been defeated but not yet eradicated. He is still prowling like a lion looking for somebody to tempt and to draw away from the Lord. That means that that Jesus has carried you out of Satan's house through his cross if you have believed in him. But it doesn't mean that Satan and his demons can't influence you. Through the indwelling of, of his spirit... You can resist Satan's temptation, but he can still tempt you. You can stand firmly on truth, but Satan Satan can still whisper lies and doubts in your ears. Friends, we we need to actively seek Jesus' present power over Satan. I, I think that the reality of the threat of Satan and and spiritual warfare is one of the things that we are least aware of as Christians And, and one of the reasons of that is because when we were freed from his dominion, we weren't even aware that we were under his dominion in the first place. We weren't aware of his threat when it was most threatening to us. And then we were freed from that. Oh, but he still whispers, he still prowls. But through Christ you can walk in the victory that he has, he has won over Satan today, and you should. What, what might it look like for you to actively seek Jesus' power over Satan today in your life? Whatever, However you're experiencing temptation, however you're experiencing doubts, however you're, you're experiencing a, a tendency to, to wander away from God or his truth, what would it look like for you to seek Jesus' power over Satan in those instances? He has, he has defeated Satan, and we, we will shortly get to just how he defeated Satan. But, but the second thing that we, huh, the, the, the second comfort that those who correctly receive Jesus receive is forgiveness remains for you. Secondly, f- forgiveness remains for you. And, and, and listen, actually, let's, let's read verses 28 and 29 first. He says, truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Now, th- this... These two verses, are, are they're still part of the cream of the Oreo. So, so it's, this isn't like a, a completely new treatment. This is, this is part of the same passage, but we're treating it independently. Why? I think you know why. Because as scholar D.A. Carson says, in real life there are few more distressing conditions calling for treatment by physicians of the soul than that of people who believe they've committed this sin. These are scary verses. These are scary verses. So let's find out and clarify what Jesus is saying here. What is the unforgivable sin? What is it? Well, in the context of this passage, look at at verse 30 for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. It was that claim. It's a claim that Jesus has an impure spirit, which is is a refusal to acknowledge that Jesus is empowered by God's spirit. So most scholars agree that the sin against the Holy Spirit involves purposely shutting your eyes to the light of Jesus and instead calling his goodness evil. purposely shutting your eyes to the light of Jesus and instead calling his goodness evil. In short, it's willfully denying Jesus and calling him evil. It's willfully denying him and attributing his works to those who would do evil, namely Satan. Why is it unforgivable? Here's, Here's the kicker. Because repentance is necessary for forgiveness. Because repentance is necessary for forgiveness. Listen, D.A. Carson, in his book, The Hard Sayings of the Bible, which I would actually recommend to you, it's a pretty scholarly book, technical book, but it is a very helpful book in passages like these where he, he very carefully dissects some of the most difficult passages of the Bible like this. And he says of this passage, the answer seems to be that the nature of this sin is such that the one who does not repent of it because those who commit it and persist in it do not know they are sinning. The failure to see it as a sin prevents a a sense of need for repentance and where repentance is absent forgiveness is impossible as another scholar mr jeff schleter wrote this last week very helpfully no this is and this really is, is very helpful how jeff articulated this he said it's the sin that's not forgiven because it's never asked to be If you're taking notes, write that down. It's the sin that's not forgiven because it's never asked to be. It is a settled opposition to Jesus. It is a life that says, I see Jesus, I know who he is, he is not of God, he is not God, and I remain opposed to him, and I'm fine with that. I have no desire to be reconciled to that. Such was the position of these scribes. They were saying, I see Jesus. He's from Satan. Get him out of here. If you deny Jesus, you will stand before God's judgment, and you will not find forgiveness. That is the scary thing about this passage, because that's true. Jesus does not pull punches here. Jesus is black and white, Here, there is no gray area. And the the irony is, listen listen to this, the irony is is, is that if you deny Jesus and you're not scared by these words, you have the most to fear of all. You have the most reason to fear. But, let me ask you this, (laughs) are you worried that you've committed this sin? Do you ever find yourself reading this passage and going, have I done this? Is this me? Take comfort. Forgiveness remains for you. One commentator says that if we still fear that we might be guilty, that is a clear sign that we have not committed this ultimate sin and are in no danger of committing it. That you would be scared that you have committed this sin is a sign that you have not committed it because your heart is leaning toward repentance. I don't want to be found guilty. He continues, Indeed, as has often been said, the real emphasis is on the other side. The wonderful truth is that all other sins can be forgiven when repented of. Look, look at Look at verse 28, and we, we so often miss this, what Jesus says first before the unforgivable sin. He says, all, seven, "All, all sins. All sins will be forgiven the children of man. Even blasphemies they utter. If you come to the Lord in repentance, there's forgiveness. If you come in repentance, there is forgiveness. This is good. News, listen to Jesus, all your sins can be forgiven. You can be included into God's family. It is possible. If you're concerned that you have committed the sin, then forgiveness still remains for you. But how? How can you be forgiven? How, how can you be included into God's family? Well, let's move to the third point. The third comfort for receiving Jesus correctly is that you belong to the best family. You belong to the best family. This is the end of the sandwich. This is the, 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 the second Oreo cookie. Both the original story and the interruption, they culminate here. The, the, the point that Jesus makes here is the main point of the entire text. So Jesus' family arrives at the house that he's teaching within, but they can't get in. They're outside this is really important. Mark is creating a, a visual representation of what Jesus is about to say. They're outside the house, and they're not yet inside. So they ask some others to go get him and bring him out. And these people go to Jesus and say, Your mother, your mother, and your brothers are outside seeking you. Now, who would have guessed what he said next? He looks at these messengers. And then his gaze broadens out to the crowd around him, and he opens his arm wide, and he says, who is my family? He says, this, this is my family. You are my mother, and my brothers, and my sisters. What is his point here? Listen up, this is his point. This is what it's all been leading to. Being on the inside of God's kingdom has nothing to do with religious titles like the scribes. It has nothing to do even with with blood relation to Jesus. As, As close and intimate as that is, then how do you get inside? Read verse 35. For whoever does the will of God. Whoever does the will of God is part of God's family, is a part of the kingdom that Jesus came to usher in, is, is inside God's blessings. Whoever does the will of God receives the comfort of knowing that Satan has been defeated in you has the comfort of knowing that that forgiveness still remains for you and will remain for you, has the comfort of knowing that you are part of a better family. Oh, gosh. Oh, 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 goodness. There's such good news in this if you're wanting to become an insider to God's blessings. At at first blush, it might seem like Jesus is saying, whoever keeps the law best is my family. But no, that's not what he's saying. It's not what he's saying. Up until now, How Mark lays this out, so important. How Mark has written his his account. Up until now, Jesus has only given one broad general command on behalf of God in his ministry. One reference to how all are to do God's will. And it was back in chapter 1, verse 15. Flip back there. It'll take one page. Not too much effort. Go back to chapter 1, verse 15. The the one broad command that Jesus has yet given for how all are to do God's will. He says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Now this, repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. So Jesus' words could be paraphrased as, in verse 35, for whoever repents and believes in the gospel, he is my brother and sister and mother. Repent of your sins. Remember, the unforgivable sin is only unforgivable because it doesn't repent. It doesn't seek forgiveness to repent whatever whatever the bible calls sin if you're walking in that repent turn from it and turn to god seek forgiveness and walk in righteousness repent and believe in the gospel believe in the good news that jesus is god's son he is not from satan he is from god in fact he is god he is god's own son sent to save us from our sin And reign as king in our lives and over all of creation. To usher in God's kingdom such that that kingdom would reign as the one true kingdom capable of ushering righteousness and goodness into the world in which we live. Sent to save us from our sin by giving himself on a cross. By standing in our place and paying for those sins that that we have and, and would and will repent for. By giving himself as a sacrifice for us. And by believing, by receiving Jesus as such. When we receive him by faith as that, You receive a welcome into his kingdom, into his family, into his offer of forgiveness, into the victory that he has won over sin and Satan and anyone and anything who opposes him. Oh, my friends, take great comfort. Take great comfort in Jesus' words in verse 35, alone even. You belong to a family. If you've received Jesus by faith, you belong to a family. You're inside the family if, if you've received him by faith. And if, if, if you have been rejected by father or mother, if you've if you suffered abuse or neglect at the hands of those who were charged to care for you, If you've experienced deep rifts in your relationship, especially because of the confession that you've made as a disciple of Christ with your brothers and cousins and aunts and uncles, if if your children have, have gone deeply astray and are living destructive lifestyles, if your family is broken, then you are welcomed into the family of Christ. A family characterized by healing and restoration. A family characterized by peace and love. And a family that will not come to an end. If you're a Christian, when is the last time that you sat back and recounted the blessings of being a part of God's family? Oh, it's so easily something that we take for granted. But just like, Families of always used to teach their kids, count your blessings one by one. We should step back every once in a while and remember what a privilege it is to be counted as members of God's household. Now, as we close, and as my voice comes to its very end, let me ask you this one question. How have you been listening to this message? as someone on the inside or as someone on the outside? Maybe at the beginning of this message, you weren't sure how you should listen to it. You weren't sure if you're on the inside or the outside. Would the blessings or the scary words of Jesus be more fitting for you? Listen, now you know. Now you know. How you receive Jesus answers that question either by faith that he's the son of god sent to save you from your sins or not how you receive him answers that question if you and if you find that you are on the outside let, let me let me say very very carefully very very compassionately very intentionally very sensitively very purposefully if you find that you are on the outside. Repent of your sins and receive Jesus by faith. This isn't just because I'm preaching a sermon, I'm doing this because we have to hit this. No, I'm saying if this is you, there is no more important thing that you can do with your life than receive Jesus by faith. And there's no no more beneficial thing that you can do with your life than receive him by faith. If that's you, I would encourage you, don't leave here today without talking to somebody. I'll I'll be up here at the end of the service. I would love to pray with you. If you need somebody to pray with and you don't want to come up here, talk to the person next to you. Have that conversation. Because how you receive Jesus determines what you get from Jesus and what we get from Jesus when we receive him by faith is more than we could have ever dreamed. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you that that your word is black and white. It leaves no room for doubt or, or question or confusion. The way to be inside your kingdom and your family is through repentance and faith in Jesus as your son sent to save us from our sins and defeat the power of Satan. Lord, I pray that you would would graciously minister to each one of us by your good and Holy Spirit this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray.